0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Yes, indeed, Father, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Spirit... Come now and speak and address us and direct our eyes to Jesus once again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, our text this evening, as Matt mentioned, um, is is the Exodus uh, chapter 12, the Passover passage that James just read for us. So you may want to keep your leaflet open to that page. Now, warning... There's a lot of detail here, and I'm getting a little nervous about that. I've already lost a lot of sleep over it, so stay with me. The plane is about to take off, and it could be a bumpy ride. And don't say I didn't warn you. So tonight, it is my hope and my prayer to help you believe that God, the God of Israel, is indeed for you. And because he is for you, he is against everything that enslaves you. I want you to see, to taste, and to know deeply that the God of Israel is indeed our great Deliverer who delivers us from slavery to sin to freedom. But we live, as Matt said, in a world of hurricanes, cancer, dysfunctional families, and shootings at a Las Vegas concert. And by all appearances, it looks as if that's not altogether true. Namely, that God is for us. It seems like the past couple weeks, just for me personally, has been filled with me sitting with various people in various life stages, but the common theme is that almost all of them are wrestling and dealing with some sort of pain, and they feel as if God is absent or distant in their life. They look around at their lives, and it's in shambles, it's collapsing. There's brokenness within, and there's brokenness without. And I have to admit, just personally, when I look inside of here, inside my life, there's not much hope either. Something is terribly and dreadfully wrong. And at some point, we do have to ask the question, Lord, where are you? Lord, where are you? I don't know if you've heard it, but back in May, the English alternative band Muse released a single called Dig Down, there are lines like this in the song, when hope and love has been lost, or when the darkness descends, or this line, when God decides to look the other way, I imagine that some of you have indeed asked those sorts of questions, where are you Lord, are you for us, are you for me? This marriage that is in front of me that's in shambles, will you ever set the world to right? Something is dreadfully wrong. Is there any justice for the people who just lost their lives at a concert in Las Vegas? Lord, are you there and are you for us? As I've said, it is my prayer tonight to help you believe in the gospel, the good news, to hear that God is indeed for you. And so my aim this evening is simply this, to stir your heart to believe, to see, and to know deeply, to know God and to know that he, the God of Israel, is our deliverer. And no matter how dark or deep the situation is, the God of Israel's promise for you is that he is for you. And he is against everything that would enslave us. So let's begin to sort of zoom slowly into our passage this evening, Exodus 12. So let's take a look at the context of the Passover. Now, Matt preached last week on Exodus 3, and we've jumped quite a bit to Exodus 12 this week. But Matt preached last week on Exodus 3, the account of the burning bush where God comes to Moses and makes himself known. And he did last week. Last week he did a great job of summarizing the Exodus theme in this book called Exodus. Now, if you weren't here or aren't familiar with what I'm talking about, the Exodus story is the story about how the God of Israel rescued a people for himself. He went to Pharaoh and he executed judgment upon him because he stood against the people of God. God rescued a people for himself. He rescued a people for himself from Egypt that would oppress and enslave his people, work them to the bone, and treat them unjustly. But because Israel's God had promised long ago that he would cause Israel to flourish, that he would be for them, now. Here in this story that we are looking at tonight and in this series, we see that God is now acting on his promises. He has not forgotten the promise that he made to Israel long ago. But if God is going to be faithful to his promise, what's going on, what's going to happen now that there is this alien power, namely Egypt, over Israel? Well, that's where this story comes in. God appears to Moses and promises in Exodus 3 that he will bring a judgment upon strong and powerful Egypt and he will raise up lowly Israel. By the way, and just a sidebar comment here, God shows this throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, we see this to be God's consistent character trait. On Sundays during evening prayer, you know, earlier we read the Fos Hilaron together, but in the place of that, normally... We will together say the Magnificat. And next time we do that, or on your own, go study Luke 1. After Mary hears the good news that she is with child, with the baby Jesus, she says this in her song, the Magnificat. She will sing this. God has brought down the mighty from their throne, yet he exalted those who are humble. That's for another sermon or Bible study, but I want to just note that, that this is a consistent character trait that we see throughout the Bible. So back to the story. God has indeed remembered his promise. He has heard the groaning of his people, and now he is going to do something about it. And God has promised to do this not because Israel has anything of inherent worth inside of them, not because they're especially a good-looking people or because they're the most multitudinous of peoples, no, not because they have something inside of them, but in Deuteronomy 7.7, God says, I simply did this because I set my love upon you. The logic of God's love works in the total opposite direction of of our view of love. So God, the God of Israel, is the one who shares his love, and he has now come to rescue his people. God will bring a judgment. As he saves Israel, as he remembers this promise, he will execute a judgment upon those who would oppress his people. And he's going to do that through a series of ten plagues, as most of you know. Now virtually every scholar of this book will note that the plagues are designed in such a way to show that the mythological gods of Egypt are nothing but shams. They cannot deliver Egypt. God is the one true God, and he is the Lord of all creation. As God is announcing the seventh plague on Egypt, he will say this to Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth you Pharaoh are still exalting yourself against my people and if Pharaoh is going to set himself against God's people the God of Israel will now show himself to be against anything that enslaves Israel precisely because he is for them well the story continues at its rapid pace and then we come to chapter 11, where the final plague, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn is announced. God announces that every firstborn, every firstborn animal, every firstborn human in Egypt will die. This will be God's final act of judgment to humble Pharaoh so that he might save his people, so that they will be his people and God will be their God. And after we get that in Exodus 11, the story comes to a screeching halt, and we arrive at tonight's passage, Exodus 12. What we've just heard read tonight, what James just read, we see two scenes, basically. The first half of Exodus 12, what we read, is God telling Moses, God giving Moses instructions about this event called the Passover, and then the second half, we basically see Moses retelling those instructions to the people of Israel. So first, God gives the instructions, and then secondly, Moses recounts those instructions. That's what we have just read. Now, as I said, I'm a little nervous. I've already lost sleep over this sermon because there's so much detail, and I kind of feel like I'm going to lose some of you. So warning, stay with me, stay awake. Um, What I want to do there's a lot of detail, so what I want to do is try to quickly summarize what we've just read. It's, it's going to feel like an old-fashioned Bible study, okay? All right, so, so what are the instructions about? Well, they are about the event called Passover, which happens on the night of God judging Egypt and rescuing his people. Why is it called Passover? Passover. Well, quite simply, because God passed over the houses of Israel and visited judgment upon those who would oppress them. What are the instructions? So now for the detail. What are the instructions? Let's boil it down into six points, I guess. So if you want to follow along in Exodus 12, let's start with point 1, verse 2. So this is point 1, verse 2. Here in this story... Where we are in the story, we are now in the month called Abib. That's according to the Israelite calendar. The month of Abib is about March or April in our calendar. And just before the climactic act of freedom happens, just before God visits judgment upon Egypt... God tells Israel, make this month right now the beginning of your new calendar year. Why? Because Israel, I am setting you free. This month, you will always remember as the month of liberation in which I judged those who would oppress you and when I set you free. This is about Israel's new identity. It is like a new creation is about to happen. Egypt's calendar was based on some sort of mythological tale, but Israel is going to remember that they exist because their God acted in history to rescue them from everything that would enslave them so that they could be God's people and God would be their God. Point two, verses three through six. God tells the people of Israel, on the tenth of Abib, every household in Israel should get a one-year-old lamb male, lamb, or goat, and they're to keep it until the 14th of Abib. So get the lamb on the 10th, keep it for a few days till the 14th. This lamb is to be without blemish, and on the 14th, you are to slaughter the lamb. Point three. This is verses 7 through 10, and verse 22, when Moses retells it. So once the family has killed the animal, they're to take a hyssop bush, dip it in the blood of the lamb that was slaughtered, they're to dip it in the animal's blood, and paint the two uh, side posts, the door posts, and the top post of the door. Then they're to cook the animal and eat it. Because this is a special night, they're not to cook it like they normally would cook a lamb. They're to cook it in a special way. They're to roast it. So essentially, this point is kill the lamb and you dip it in the blood, paint the two side posts and the top posts, and eat the lamb. So point four, verse 11. They are to eat it like they're in a rush. Some of you have met my housemate, Clayton. Clayton and I often, because we have an affection for Johnny's and Homewood, good fried butter and fat, we will often meet in the week to have fried chicken and fried green tomatoes. And Clayton, I often joke with him, always is eating like he's ready to go. He's on the edge of his seat. He's it, Before I can even eat my cornbread and fried green tomatoes, Clayton is up and ready to go because he is ready to go get somewhere. That is exactly how the people of Israel are to eat this Passover meal, because they are to wait with... They are to eat with great anticipation that freedom is coming for them. Two more points, and this is more about the why behind why Israel is to do this. So point five, verses 12 through 13. God says, the whole reason you are doing this is because this is my Passover meal. And why you are going to do all this is so that you will know that I, God, am redeeming you from slavery to freedom. I am going to execute judgment on all those who would oppress you, and I am going to set you free because I have set my love upon you. I will pass over your houses. Israel will be spared. Israel, I will be your Savior. Allow me to get a little nerdy here. If you look at the middle of verse 12, God says, I will, strike ju- I will strike the firstborn. Then it basically repeats it, but says it in backwards order and says, I will execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. Right? So the point... Pass over the detail. The point is, God is about to execute judgment upon the firstborn, and he is doing this so that he can execute judgment upon the mythological gods that have enslaved Egypt and have enslaved Israel. God is going to show himself, in short, to be the true God over Egypt and to be the one who sets the prisoner free. He will set Israel free from all physical and spiritual oppression that would enslave them. Then if we're to listen to verse 27, Moses says to them, when your children ask, when when your son asks, well, Dad, why do we do this? Well, quite simply, because this is God's Passover, where every year we retell the story because God has set us free so that we will be his people and God will be our God. And on that night, he struck down and showed himself to be against all that would enslave us. The point here is simply this. God has delivered you because he is for you. All right, point six, final point on the detail. Verse 13, the blood that you have painted on your two side posts and on the top post, that's a sign not for me, says God, not because I will not know or because I will have forgotten. This is a sign for you. A sign for Israel so that you will know in a real tangible way that I have promised to be with you and I will not leave you nor forsake you. In fact, I am setting you free and I have made my promise and I am always faithful to my promises. So this sign is for you. All right. I know that was rough. I felt it too. And for those of you who started saying, where in the world is this guy going with this sermon? Come back. Come back. All right, so we've talked about all the details of the instructions. So, but what does this animal sacrifice, this festival called Passover, what does that have to say to you and to me living in 21st century Birmingham? Did you notice earlier that when James read the Scripture passages, when he read 1 Corinthians, that without even batting an eye, Paul simply moved from Passover to Christ? He just says, without making any you know, sort of excuses, he just says, Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. We as Christians know when we read the Old Testament and all of the scriptures, all of the scriptures are pointing us to Jesus. As Jonathan Edwards says, Christ and his redemption are the subject of the whole word of God. All of these details are to point us to Jesus. Again, it is my hope and prayer tonight to help you believe that the God of Israel has shown himself to be for you in Jesus' death and resurrection. So just briefly as we close, two, two things to remember from the Passover passage. Number one, God has made himself known to us. Number one, God has made himself known. And two, this God that has made himself known He has promised to be for you and to be against everything that would enslave you. So first, here in the Passover passage and in the Exodus story in general, God himself reveals to us to be our God. If I can paraphrase part of Exodus 6, God says to Moses, In former times I appeared and promised things, but I didn't make my name known then. Now, in the Exodus, when I set you free, I am going to make my name known. I am going to make my name known with this great and mighty act of deliverance, where I execute judgment upon all that would enslave you, and when I set you free. I am the one who rescues those who are oppressed in slavery, says God. Says God, I am the mighty warrior. I have redeemed you. I have rescued you from slavery. The God of Israel makes himself known to us as our father, and we are like children to him. In fact, in Exodus 4.22, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh this. Moses, you are to go tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So when God execute judgment upon Egypt by killing the firstborn, it's as if God is saying this to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you have chosen to enslave my firstborn son, so now I will execute judgment upon your firstborn. That is what's happening here. Our God is not a distant God. He has come into our mess, into our slavery, and he has made himself known as our God. He has made himself known as the one who sets the prisoner free point two when god makes himself known to us as our god he makes himself known as the one who is for us and against all that would enslave us as i've said multiple times to repeat the point here in the passover passage that we have just heard from we realize the story teaches us that there's a cost to such redemption to such, to such freedom. There's a cost when God redeems us and rescues us from slavery to freedom. It's not as if God is merely just sweeping aside things and looking the other way and then everyone goes about their business. No, there's a cost. The cost here is the life of the Lamb in place of Israel. There must be some sort of sacrifice, some sort of substitution in place of Israel. But we Americans don't really think this way. We like redemption, but we don't necessarily like the cost to that redemption. In fact, Flannery O'Connor, the Southern writer, says in one of her essays in Mystery and Manners, There is something in us, she says, as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. But the reader of today looks for this motion, and rightly so, but what he has forgotten is the cost of it. The Passover passage that we have just heard from teaches us that there is a cost to such redemption, a cost to the deliverance from our slavery. In verse 13, the blood of the lamb is the sign for Israel that God has made a promise. The lamb who was slain to protect and cover God's firstborn son, Israel the blood that covered them on that awful night of judgment against egypt this is the blood of the lamb this is the sign for israel that god is their god and he will be faithful to free them from slavery and when we finally get to jesus in the new testament the gospel writers and paul and peter they will not hesitate to draw the connection between the old testament what we have just been reading the Passover lamb, and Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John's storyline is told in such a way to say it was on this very day, the Passover, when all the lambs are being sacrificed, the true lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is now being sacrificed in your place. John wants us to know that Jesus is truly our Passover lamb, who sets us free, who was in our place and took sin and death and judgment down to the hellish dump it deserves. First Peter 1:18 and 19 will do something similar. Peter will remind us that we were rescued or ransomed or redeemed, not with money. That was not the cost. No, the cost of your freedom was the precious blood of the Lamb without blemish. And because we know Exodus 12, as soon as Peter says that, we should know, oh, you're talking about that back in Exodus 12. God has said in Jesus, I have shown you my sign that I am for you to set you free. So our question again that we started with. In this world of suffering and pain and sin and death and despair, Has God decided to look the other way, as Muse thinks? Has he decided not to deal with the alien power that enslaves us, namely sin, death, and the devil? The Passover instructions and the Exodus story here reveals that in Jesus' own crucifixion, God says to us, I have heard your cries and your pain and your agony. I have seen your sin, and I have not passed over it. In fact, I have dealt with it once and for all. God has promised to us in Jesus that he is making all things new. And you, church, you are the first signs of spring in this winter of sin. So has God decided to look the other way? No. If Paul is right in Romans 4, then God may have once overlooked sins, but now in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has finally once and for all dealt with sin. And so in the cross of Jesus, we see the final liberation from all that would oppress us, from all that would enslave us and creation. God is for you, and because he is for you, he is against everything that would enslave you. And there is coming a day when he will finally overthrow that last enemy to be destroyed, death itself. And on that day, when death is finally destroyed, we will be God's people and God will be our God. And on that day, when the victory has come, we will sing the words of Revelation 7. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen.